You're listening to All Things Video, a podcast dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video ecosystem. This episode is brought to you by TubeBuddy, the complete toolkit for YouTube channel management. This power-packed browser extension helps with everything from both metadata edits and trending keyword suggestions to thumbnail optimization, fan engagement tools, and so much more. Visit TubeBuddy.com to meet your new best friend on YouTube. You're listening to All Things Video. I'm your host, James Creech, and today's guest is Tony Del Mercado, co-founder and COO of Hawk Media. Tony, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, James. Appreciate it. Yeah, excited to have you here. So I want to talk a little bit about digital marketing and, and the marketer's perspective, how you help brands through video and, of course, through other digital means today. But I thought we'd start by traveling back in time to learn a little bit more about your background and career trajectory. My background, my background is all over the place, but I'm, yeah, I'm happy to talk about it. I actually, I went to school, well, how far back do we want to go? Let's go. <laughs> Let's go. Back to school. Way back. I grew up in Minnetonka, Minnesota. It's a west suburb of Minneapolis. My sort of entrepreneurial career started with a lawn mowing business with my friend Brent, and we you know, mowed lawns in the neighborhood and ended up turning it into a much larger operation with a truck and you know commercial mowers and trailers and how old were you at the time? I was 15, actually, I remember, because I couldn't wow. drive. He, okay. had, he had to drive. <laughs> and it was like a big deal for me to pull the truck like down the hill to our next uh, customer's uh-huh. house. But we ended up actually selling that business before we went to college. Uh, and so that was the first sort of entrepreneurial foray. And from there, I always wanted to be my own boss. I like the idea of teaching. So when I went to school, I went to University of Wisconsin at Madison, and I wanted to be a teacher. And then I realized very quickly that I made more... Uh, between the ages of 15 and 17 and selling a lawn company than I would ever make as a teacher, which is disappointing and probably the longer topic of another podcast. But I decided I didn't want to be a teacher. I wanted to be an architect. So I moved to Boston and I went to a small private architectural school called the Boston Architectural Center. Now it's called the Boston Architectural College, I believe. But I worked at a firm in the north end of Boston. I was an architect, enjoyed it a lot. Then I wanted to be a West Coast architect. So I moved to uh, the aim was San Francisco, but ended up on the Santa Rosa-Sonoma border. And then while I was sort of waiting for the next architectural gig to land in my lap, I stumbled across an ad for a company, which I later found out was selling knives, Cutco Cutlery, which I think people have probably heard of at some point. And I ended up doing that for a little while and then progressing sort of through their management to the point where... Uh, I was running a fairly large chunk of offices and salespeople, and I learned over the, I guess it was five full years that I was there, almost five full, full years, a ton about recruiting and training and development and advertising and marketing. And that led me to then move to LA originally to help open a location-based deals startup with some people. It was called Acrylics. It was a really good idea, a little early as far as like when the product was released, I don't think people were quite ready for it. It was really interesting. I had to convince business owners that it was a good idea to be part of a network where they could distribute deals in real time, like a captive audience of people that had subscribed to their particular restaurant or venue. Like let's say the Dodgers here are 5,000 seats short sold for the afternoon game. And then they send out a text, essentially, SMS message that says, hey, Dodger tickets are 20% off, join now. It's really cool. So this was kind of before the big era of flash sales and daily deal sites like Groupon. Yeah, exactly. And just people weren't quite, it was really interesting, people weren't quite ready for it. So that ended up not working out. And then I ran a nonprofit organization 
and then I ran an artist development company for musicians because I used to be in a band and understood a little bit about digital fan acquisition, which is the same thing as digital customer acquisition. And then I was involved in an incubator here in town called Science and consulted for them. Companies like Dollar Shave Club is the big one and Dog Vacay and helped launch a women's activewear brand called Ellie. How did you connect it to the science crew? Yeah, my, my current business partner, Eric, had gotten connected with them because of a t-shirt subscription company that we had also kind of started called the Swag of the Month. And it was before subscription commerce was all the rage, but people would essentially pick their styles and then we would send them a t-shirt every month, one of those kinds of things. So again, more customer acquisition, digital customer acquisition stuff. And then he ended up working over there. I don't know how he got involved with them, but he was my entree into that group. And then he was working as a consultant under the name Hawk Media, sort of providing high level digital marketing strategy. And at the beginning of 2000, and, well, the end of 2013, he and I had a conversation about turning that into a real, you know, quote unquote agency, where we hired some of our friends to do Facebook marketing, display, email, affiliate, influencer, those kinds of things. And then that turned into what Hawk Media is today. So, so pretty linear career progression, right? Yeah, From... very, very direct. Very direct. Um, so lawn mowing to <laughs> architecture. What what called you out to the West Coast? Why did you eventually make the move to SF and LA? You know, I grew up in Minnesota, like I said, and I always I had this love affair with Southern California. Like I played music that I thought was from Southern California. I wore you know, orange board shorts in November in Minnesota. People thought it was really weird. I really liked Southern California. There was always a draw there, but I always had this little love affair with Boston too. So I, I kind of wanted to check that out. I, I always knew I would land in or around LA, Orange County, something like that. So here you are, you're home. So, so here I am. Yeah. And now I'm married. I have a two-year-old son. I have another son due in a month and we've definitely- Congratulations. Yeah. Thank wow. You. It's yeah, amazing. Yeah. So we're, we're here. We're here. The <laughs> business is here in Santa Monica. I'm here in Santa Monica. The weather down here is just, I mean- Outside right now, it's un- it's unbelievable. It's perfect. I drove here with the top down. Like, <laughs> You're yeah. living right. That's the un- way to do it. Unbelievably warm and perfect out here all the time. So it's a bit of a cliche, but the weather is worth it. Yeah. Let's dig in a little bit more to the origin story of Hawk Media. So you told you know us how Eric was doing some marketing and consulting on the side, and you wanted to turn that into a full fledged agency. How did you and Eric first come into contact? So he and I again, not a linear story, but we. We met when I was running a nonprofit organization called the World Business Academy. That was started in the 80s by a guy named Ronaldo Brudico and his partner who has since deceased. But, and this was a long time ago. This is before like the people, planet, profit, triple bottom line that came out of Harvard and before corporate social responsibility was a term. This organization was all about redefining the role of business as a social partner. Basically, business can be an integral part of a community and an important unproductive one, not some bane on the existence of everyone around it. Cool concept, great board, great fellows. I met him through a family friend that uh, said, hey, you should really talk to Tony, bright young guy, interested in the nonprofit space. And at the time, I was very, very interested in you know running a nonprofit. So when I was doing that, that was at the same time that he had invested in a company that Eric and his friend started called Fame Wizard, which was this artist development company that I also ended up running. But that is how I met Eric. So Eric started this company with his friend, Ronaldo had put some money behind it. And so I ended up meeting Eric through that. And then we just stayed in touch. We did, you know, five or six different things since then together. And Hawk Media was the one that both he and I really, it allowed us both to be exactly who we want to be. We both have, I think, a diverse skill set, but it allows us both to like yin and yang. He loves you. Yeah, yeah, uh-huh. exactly. And so 
we get along like peas and carrots. It's just super, super. That's easy. awesome. Yeah. What about him in this part? You know, if, if you're starting a business or trying to find a good co-founder, identifying that right partner is tough, right? So what about you and Eric made it such a good match? I think it has to do mostly with just to be very blunt about it, like ego and who's the face of the franchise. I don't need to be known publicly. I have no desire for people to, you know, uh, look at me as the next, you know, great innovator or, I don't need to write a book that shares with everybody the wisdom I've accumulated over the years. Or, <laughs> or come on podcasts and talk about all your secrets no, I, of I love being on podcasts because I feel like it gives me a platform to add real value. Okay. Right? Like, I, I love that, like, mm-hmm. real tangible value. That's but what it's all about. I don't have any desire to be known in the world. But the thing is, that's a really important thing, especially in the marketing game, to have somebody be out there. If you look at Gary Vaynerchuk, I don't know how successful or how great their agency is. I know that he's known as a really sharp marketer. And as a result of that, that agency gets a heck of a lot of business. Yeah, big halo effect, huh? Huge. And so Eric really likes being out there. He's a Forbes 30 under 30 guy. He's, you know, writing a book. He's, um, you know, part of the Milken's uh, Institute Young Leaders and like tons of these groups. And so very visible on the road. I call him the face of the franchise, right? Loves beating the drum, loves waving the flag. And will admit, if he was sitting here in the room, I would say the same thing. Not a great management guy. Doesn't like managing people. uh, Doesn't like managing the day-to-day. He's just a machine. He works all day, every day, and loves being out there. Loves building bridges. A very strong networker. And we basically said early on, hey, look, you know, you go get the business, I'll service it. And we both really benefit from each other's strengths there. Like I said earlier, married, kids, fairly rooted. I don't want to be on a plane every other day. I don't want to be like, your travel schedule is awesome. Right? <laughs> uh, it's really cool, actually, when you were talking earlier about some sure. of the countries you visited. It's like, oh, man, that's, that sounds fun. But that's a different chapter for, for, sure. for me. Yep. And so I really like sort of managing the, the nest, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. So tell us a little bit more about the original concept behind Hawk and what you guys do today. Yeah, so originally it was, like I said, it was Eric as a consultant providing high-level digital marketing strategies. So mostly fashion e-commerce here in LA, a lot of brands, a lot of companies that were looking to grow their digital revenues, right? So he would come in and say, well, this is wrong, that's wrong, missing a lot of opportunity here, should be doing A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And they would say, this is great, can you execute on this, right? Because there's really two solutions. You either hire an in-house team or you go to an agency, again, I'm doing the bunny years, where you've got fairly large minimum commitments, both monetarily and in terms of like length of contract. And there wasn't a great a la carte month to month sort of solution in the same way that we've come to expect from like a SaaS platform. And when clients were saying, can you go execute this? We thought, yeah, that sounds great. And that's right around the time that Eric and I started talking about, is this a viable business? Is there enough demand? And there was, I mean, immediately, we never raised a dollar. We never you know, had to go to a bank or anything like that. We built everything on the revenues that we got from clients that were already consulting clients that needed someone to go execute a Facebook campaign or execute uh, an influencer engagement. And so that was the beginning of how that sort of came to be. It was really based on market demand. And what a great hook to give them the on-demand service yeah. to be, as you've kind of stated in other places, an outsourced CMO yeah. where you can come in we understand the strategy, but we can also execute on a tactical level, show you real results. And then if it works, keep doing more. If not, you know, yeah, you yeah, have other exactly. options. And, you know, it's really hard. Like if you want to build an in-house team and you hire a CMO and then they tell you that what you really should be focused on is AdWords and affiliate marketing, 
it's difficult to fire that CMO and then hire an AdWords person. And then once your revenue gets to a certain point, hire that CMO back, they'll be upset with you. We're super happy to scale up and down and kind of move through things in a way that fits what the business needs at that time, right? And the truth is, and we stumbled across a lot of these things, I'm not going to say that we had the foresight to nail this right out of the gate, but because we're month to month and a la carte, the barrier to entry is really low to work with us. And we ended up securing a lot of client engagements that a newer agency with five or six people probably wouldn't have. And then that led to more and that led to some validation and we had some wins early and some good case studies. And so that led to more business. And again, having that low barrier to entry and sort of the the flexibility to turn us on and off has led to us being able to grow really, really quickly. That's awesome. Yeah. Do you find that that also creates ease of competition? If there's a low barrier to entry, other people are coming in and it's hard to build your moat? Yeah, totally. It's funny. We, We trademarked your outsourced CMO because we saw other people using it. Since we started, and no surprise, month to month a la carte marketing services are more widely available today than they were three years ago, three and a half years ago. I don't have the ego to say that's because of us, right? But I think that there's certainly some people taking notice here in the LA market in particular. There's a lot of consultants that work on a consulting basis as individuals that say, hey, I'm a marketing expert, that have now hired a couple of their buddies to try and model uh, something similar. So there is that same, there is definitely more competition, but our competition is more the small consultant than it is the big agency. What we now have to stand on is we've got that small, flexible feel, but we've got 80 some people and we've got three and a half years of competency and experience. And we touched 400 clients and we just, we have optics into things that smaller groups don't. What does the future hold for Hawk? What we're really excited about is creating more and more world-class marketers. I mean, more every day. We were kind of chatting before the podcast. I'm almost a creator of curriculum. I see myself as you know a department chair at a university almost, where I'm creating a ton of curriculum around how we educate every single person at Hawk Media to be world-class. We really want to focus on overcoming the notion like volume and quality are mutually exclusive. I think that's a fallacy. I don't think that you can, that, that you have to, you don't have to sacrifice one for the other. I think we can work with a lot of clients and we can work with a lot of people in a very effective way. In the same way you can go get a Big Mac anywhere in the world and it tastes the same, I think you can work with anybody from Hawk, any derivative of any teams that we have, and you're going to get an excellent result. So that's a big thing that is taking up a lot of mind share. And then obviously technology. We see artificial intelligence getting, you know, the term gets thrown around a lot. There won't be true artificial intelligence for a decade, at least in my opinion, at least in a marketing capacity. But I do think it makes sense to get hip to what we can do technologically and how we can have technology-supported marketing in ways that are more advanced than we do today. And we're doing some things to that end. We're investing in, in some software and things like that. But yeah, that's all happened. So when you work with brands in these capacities, how do you encourage them to leverage video? Yeah, so I think the biggest thing about video is it's my favorite kind of content. I like video more than I like the written word. I like video more than I like really punchy taglines. I love punchy taglines though, don't get me wrong. Like I love seeing great image assets with one line of copy that are just like, ah, it's great, you know, perfect, right? Uh, I think there's a real art to that. A lot of e-commerce brands really need to work on who the heck they are, right? Who they are from a content perspective, what their story is, what their narrative is. And so we really encourage people to have great video assets that describe that, right? Most of what we do is around Mm e-commerce, probably 80% of our roster. Why is that? Is that just early on you developed 
a strong understanding of that vertical and focused on those case studies, expanded more customers? Yeah, I think it's a, you know, it's a cyclical thing, right? We, we had those clients early and so we saw success there early. So then we had a reputation there. And then also because what we find is a lot of um, product companies, they might have a great designer, a great product person, a great CEO, a great vision, a great sales team. Marketing functions usually aren't some of the first hires in companies like that. And we think we've got that pretty well dialed. So that's who we tend to go after as well. And because there's a lot of, I mean, yeah. that's the other thing is if you look at the small to medium sized e-commerce businesses in America, there's probably 750,000 of them, hmm. right? I mean, if we work with 1% of them, I'm stoked on that. That's a good number. We like that space in general. So if their goal is primarily conversion, right? Mm E-commerce companies are all trying to sell their products. What marketing tactics or strategies do you encourage them to take advantage of? Is video a part of that strategy? Yeah, definitely. E-commerce 1.0 was you sell stuff in a store and there's this thing called the internet, so you should probably sell there too, right? E-commerce 2.0 is all the great tools that have come sort of to bear now with Shopify and WooCommerce plugins for WordPress and all these great email platforms like MailChimp and, you know, automatic cart abandonment things. Like, so e-commerce 2.0 is anybody can do it now. Everybody's online. E-commerce 3.0, we tend to believe is going to be the people that have a story, that have a narrative, that have something to say. And then essentially what you're buying into is not just the product, but this, this brand, right? So I think video, as far as a marketing strategy is for brand creation, right? I don't see video as an amazing direct response platform. And it might be upsetting some of the video folk listening to your podcast, but I don't see... I that. don't think you're wrong, by the way. I, I think it has potential, but uh, maybe it's not there yet, whether that's shoppable video or exactly. you know, other yeah. formats, technology-enabled opportunities for e-commerce. But today, yeah. you're right, you won't see the same kind of conversion rates from video that you would from other marketing approaches. Exactly. But I do think it's a super, super important part of an overall content strategy. And it's an important part of a brand building strategy. Even if you're using it in a direct response environment, like a Facebook ad that's got a video, right? Obviously we've, we've all seen more and more of this, even the stuff that doesn't matter if the audio is there because there's uh, graphic overlays and all these kinds of fun things. We like that because it allows you to tell a story. And it's really going to be those brands that can tell a story that get off of the direct response like hamster wheel. If your business is completely reliant on, I put money in top of funnel here, I drive some conversion rate based on X, Y, and Z, and I nurture some people back to conversion based on these other things that I do, that's fine. But as soon as you quit putting money in the top of the funnel, it all just dries up. If you build a brand, you've got some level of affinity, email engagement, sort of nurturing, going back to the well of your existing customer base through referrals, through recommendations, programs like that. If you've got a good brand, you don't need to be so tied to that like direct response addiction. And so for the brands that we work with, we tend to emphasize video as part of that storytelling component, right? So your blog shouldn't just be a blog. You should have video assets. You should have you know, your ad units, you should, you should have video ad units, right? Like whether it's in a YouTube pre-roll or whether it's in, you know, a, a paid placement through like a more like programmatic delivery system, like a Hulu, or if it's just an ad unit on Facebook, like you should have video assets because it allows you to control that narrative a little bit better. What are some of the brands that you feel are doing a really good job with video today? I think Chubby's is the one that like comes to mind a lot. I think they do a very good job. The reason I use them a lot in examples is just because they have, it's very clear who they are, right? Like this whole short shorts and bros and drinking PBR. It's very clear who they are and all of their video supports that. It's people swinging from 
a rope swing into a you know an inner tube full of beers or whatever like it's very clear who they are and they're getting you interesting content in a way that is i don't want to say aspirational that's not quite right but it's it's a they're selling a lifestyle they convey an emotion and a feeling with their video that allows consumers to feel like they're buying into that, right? Like when you buy a pair of chubbies, you think that you're this guy that's on a boat, that's having fun, that's surrounded by other beautiful people doing cool, fun things. They made the dad bod cool. You know, there's like, there's just all these kinds of things that I think they're saying with their video that drives real revenues, but it tells a story. So I, so I like them. What are the challenges that you think brands face in leveraging video effectively? I think the, the main thing is creating video that's authentic, right? Like not everybody, and this is again, something that frustrates people, but not everybody has a cool story, right? Like sometimes brands just don't quite have it figured out who they are or what to say or what tone to take. And so they end up producing video just because they know they need to, that's not like on the mark, right? And I think that's usually a function of not investing enough resources and figuring out who the heck we are, what's our voice, who are we targeting, what are we trying to say and to whom? So I think that that's a real challenge. And then we, you know, we just touched on this a little bit before, but where do I put these video assets? Is it on my site? Is it on YouTube? Is it on Facebook? Is it on Instagram? What am I using for social? What am I using for, you know, brand building? What am I using for DR? I think understanding where to use these assets is a real challenge that even, you know, someone like myself that's pretty deep in the marketing world on a daily basis, I don't have great answers around that. Well, it's really specific to the brand, right? And I imagine that's where the strategy component comes in. You want to dive deep and not every brand needs to be on every platform, right? Or brands are going to see varying levels of success on a specific platform and it needs to be tailored to the strategy. Yeah. We're seeing that a lot with Snapchat. Everyone's like really stoked to get on Snapchat. Because it's cool. It's new. Yeah, yeah. doesn't mean it's going to convert. It doesn't mean it does anything. Yeah. Right? And we're seeing, you know, obviously they posted, what was it? Like 2.2 billion in losses or something like that last Yikes. quarter. And I think they're, I don't know. I'll stay away from that one. I think it's going to be tough for them to see success from especially a smaller to medium-sized advertiser. It's just tough. Big brands, it works great. Vice works great. Right? But I don't know that it's going to work well for small, smaller companies. I just don't know that that's ever going to be successful. So you don't need to have someone curate your, your stories on Snapchat if you're a smaller brand. Think about where else that video can be deployed, where else that can be meaningful. You're totally right. It's just a matter of like picking and choosing where someone can be. What's coming next? What do you see or forecast for brand marketers and the online video world? You started to talk about some of it. Shoppable video. I think there's a lot of cool technology. I've seen probably, and I won't be able to remember the names, but I've seen five different ones that are like, whoa, that's really cool. I wonder what they're up to now. And I'll look six months later and it hasn't really evolved. It hasn't become the thing that they thought it was going to be. But yeah, shoppable video is going to be really, really cool. I think um, and maybe that ties in with some of the AI and even like the AR VR experiences. If yeah. you have an overlay where the video content is interactive, you have, you know, this lifestyle brand being portrayed and then an opportunity to buy directly through the experience that yeah. might be the next evolution of how that. And that's the other one. I'm really interested in the AR to physical retail. Like I think that's going to be if I were in physical retail, if I was in the brick and mortar space, so that's the way to reinvent yourself. Right I'd now. be investing heavy in AR, super heavy in AR, because I think those brands like Nordstrom's is the most successful of the sort of big box, like in our space. And anyway, when I think about the fashion and clothing accessories, like they're doing better than the other ones and they're still down a ton, right? 
And so I think if you're in that space, if you're in the brick and mortar space, AR and what happens with video there, VR is interesting too, but I almost categorize that differently than video because you're also in this super immersive experience that very rarely are you going to want to eject from to go engage with brand, product, whatever it might be, unless it's native in the same way that there's Pepsi on the desk in a movie scene. There may very well be Pepsi on the desk in a VR experience. And so there's that product placement side of things, but that's not to me the same as like, if you've got an AR platform, some kind of glasses or whatever it ends up being, and you've got video overlays as you walk by that store and there's a great story about these shorts. And, and it's tailored to you, right? Exactly. You know, someone exactly. might see Pepsi, I might see Coke if that's my preference, whatever it is. Exactly. So uh-huh. I think that's really cool. And then the, the video formats that are super, I mean, I am embarrassed to say that I didn't see the audio list video like most. I don't have the stats in front of me, but the, the number of videos that are consumed without audio now with you know motion graphics and these kind of quick snippets, that's something that I didn't see coming, but obviously that's that's where it is now, right? Especially in social. So yeah, I think it, it will continue to be interesting how that evolves. I'm curious to see how length of length of video, right? If that's something that's exciting, I don't know, but going from this idea of like, oh, commercial is 30 seconds to you have eight seconds to maybe 15 is the sweet spot and looking at all these different, you know, ad unit sizes. Mm -hmm. I think it'll be interesting to see what level of efficacy each of those have. And the platforms are pushing different philosophies, right? I mean, YouTube for a long time has advocated longer video content in a sense because the algorithm is based on watch time and rewards additional session starts and the ability to roll out mid-roll and other types of ad formats. Yeah. Whereas something like Snapchat and Instagram is you know, very much native short form and micro content. Yeah. And so at the same time that maybe we're pushing for longer content experiences, we're also pushing for shorter ad experiences. So yeah. YouTube rolling out the six second ad format, yeah. Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, and others experimenting with very, very short form ads. It can be challenging for a brand to tell a story in that short of a window. Yeah, I completely agree. It's really interesting from, again, from an attribution standpoint, I've seen one company in particular, which I'm not helpful because I don't remember the names of any of these things. <laughs> All of these companies <laughs> shall remain nameless. There's one that they were essentially aggregating all of your video advertising and saying, if this was a what, what Facebook counted as a view versus what uh, Instagram versus YouTube versus this, that, and it was telling you, so you can actually compare apples to apples on what was effective and what wasn't, because the way all those reports are generated from each of those platforms... It's entirely different, but also different. the standards are different, right? Three yeah. seconds on Facebook is a view versus exactly. a watch time you know, requirement and how the, the video was initiated on YouTube. So and it's not truly apples to apples. Exactly. Case. And so they were, they were trying to make that more simple for an advertiser. And at the end of the day, like, like we were kind of talking about earlier is... You just, I don't think you can look at that as a straight DR platform, right? That's just not a direct response medium in the same way that like a rotator ad for specific products is. Sure. Like, you know what you're doing there. You know what you're clicking on. You know that you're going to land on a product that's intent or like a shopping ad on Google, right? Like those are things that are, there's intent behind the click, whereas opposed to video might just be something that washes over people. And, you know, we've been talking about view through conversions since the dawn of display marketing, right? Where it's like, yeah, they saw this thing and they converted later through a different channel. How much of that can I attribute accurately to, you know, this thing that they saw in passing on the web in the last 24, 48, 72 hours, again, depending on how you report on all that stuff, you can get lost in there. 
Oh, big time. Yeah. I think you're right. Talking about like the multi-touch attribution problems and where do you take advantage of each of these approaches within your funnel, right? So does video live at the top and that's for awareness and discovery, but then later on you want to retarget and whether that's through social ads or, you know, looking at people's search behavior to move them down funnel, especially in your business from an e-commerce standpoint to ultimately drive product purchase. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, like I said, I, I still think video is the coolest coolest. I don't know if that's a great business term, but I, I just like it. Sure. I, I like video as a format. Yep. It's really just about using it, understanding the right tool for the right job. Go from there. Let's wrap up with some uh, rapid fire questions. All right. What are some great books that have inspired you in your career or maybe that you've read recently and enjoyed? Sure. The two that I always lean back on are the seven habits of highly effective people and how to win friends and influence people. Or wait, Can you rattle off the seven habits? Uh, probably not. <laughs> probably not. But I, I do. I know the last one is sharpen the saw, which means there we go. Right again, right? That's I right. Go well, and kind of goes back to you talking about how do you create a curriculum and encourage professional development within your organization so that everyone can continually upgrade their skills, sharpen the saw, so to speak. Yeah, I, I like those both a lot. And then on the on the personal front, let's see, what's the last book that I read that I thought was really interesting is, uh, oh, this <laughs> kind of interesting. It's called uh, The Truth. Uh, you ever hear of the game? You're about basically pickup artists and sure. meet women and all these other things. The guy, Neil Strauss, that wrote that, he starts this book, The Truth, by saying, 10 years ago, I wrote a book about how to get women to like you. This book is about what to do once they do, right? And it's really interesting. It's about his whole journey through like different kinds of relationships, polyamory and monogamy and all these other things. It's just, it's a really interesting read from a guy who, you know, 10 years earlier was writing what most people would see as like pretty superficial stuff about how to go get girls. And this is a lot more in-depth nuanced about love and relationships <laughs> and feelings and, you know, your history and the way that you were raised. It's a, uh, that's a good read. Wow. Interesting. What are some of the biggest challenges that you faced as an entrepreneur? The biggest thing for me is the commitment to excellence. I think most people that are in, in an operational role or in a managerial role, want things to be done at a certain level and, and have high expectations. I have incredibly high standards for myself. I put that on everyone, right? And the challenge is inevitably people will let you down and come up short and all those things. And so I think having the patience to work with people and coach people and spend time that I sometimes use the expression, how do you spell love? It's T-I-M-E. And so the, the time, the, the time that it takes to really develop people and develop, develop good process, good practices, uh, and good people around you as an entrepreneur is, it just can't be overstated how much time it takes. And that time should be spent with people. Uh, you should almost never be doing anything alone. Someone should be shoulder surfing or sitting next to you, listening to a call, watching an interview, something, because that is, uh, that's a great way to leverage the time that you have. And I just think that it's not understood by a lot of people. Uh, if you want to really, really grow an organization, you have to spend a tremendous amount of time with all of the people in that organization. And if you were starting a business in the digital media or the online video space today, starting fresh, what would you do? Man, that's a good question. I would probably go heavy in, you know, machine learning. And uh, I think the idea of natural language processing and understanding social sort of behaviors, understanding that certain people with certain affinity groups are keen on this kind of advertising language. 
really developing something that understands that, that can hopefully automate and predict a lot of that. So I know that, you know, when James is scrolling through his social profiles, this is the kind of copy that gets him to not only engage, but convert. And then I can even drive the copy on my landing pages to mirror exactly what it is that you want. I think completely customizing and making dynamic the user experience for purchase is a really interesting next step. I think it would take a ton of resources <laughs> to actually develop said thing, but that's where I would be, is if I can make totally tailored from advertisement to landing page to email messaging language that I know appeals to James, I think there's a I think there's billions of dollars in that. Very cool. So it sounds like you'd go from an agency model or a service business to more of a technology play. I would. I think the, the agency business is beautiful because I get to be a teacher, which is what I originally wanted to do. And there's a ton of people. But that at the same time creates a lot of challenges that leveraging technology doesn't. There's very different problems associated with developing tech, as you know, much better than I do. Right. But I do see the whole computing revolution that's going to happen in the next 20 years. It's not going to be like the industrial revolution or the internet revolution. It's, I think it's going to be exponentially different once we actually dial in serious computational power and artificial intelligence. It's going to be, it's going to be a brave new world in like 20 years. And so I want to kind of get in ahead of that. I love it. A lot to look forward to. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> well, Tony, thanks so much for coming on the show. This has been awesome just to learn more about your background and what Hawk's been up to and kind of the evolution of brand marketers and how they're leveraging video, especially online. It's, it's fascinating. So yeah. thanks again. My pleasure. Happy to come down. Thanks for tuning in. I'm James Creech, and this has been another edition of All Things Video. If you like what you hear, we hope you'll share and subscribe for new episodes. See you next time. Thank you.